Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Philemon. We're going to finish this tonight, I believe. This is a book that I think some people didn't realize was in the Bible. And because uh, uh, I've heard some questions and comments about it. Uh, but it's in there, stuck right before Hebrews. It's just one simple chapter, and it's very easy. I really felt led to go through this because there's a lot in here. Uh, anything in the Bible is important. And there's some things that may be a little more important than others, but anything that's in the Bible is important. Even the amens at the end of a, of a letter, and as somebody was sharing with me before, as Paul begins most of his letters, with, you know, uh, grace and peace be unto you. And those are they're important. Those were not just words. They're in there by the Holy Spirit. So every word in this Bible is, is important. And uh, so this is important. So we're going to read down through it. We, I don't think we've ever gotten all the way through it, actually. And then I'm going to go in a little different direction tonight. So again, background for those of you that have not been here or, or just to review it for some of you that may need to be reviewed. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to a gentleman named Philemon. Philemon is, uh, was probably most likely a wealthy businessman or some wealthy person uh, in, in Corinth. And uh, uh, in the, uh, not in Corinth, in, in Colossae. And Paul is writing this letter to him. The church at Colossae was held in his house. You'll see that as we go through the letter. And we, we suspect he was wealthy because he owned slaves. And, and the reason we know that is this letter is written from the Apostle Paul while he's in prison for his first imprisonment to Philemon regarding a slave that Philemon used to own that had run away. And the implication is he'd taken something with him that didn't belong to him. He'd stolen something, ended up in Rome, and under Paul's ministry while he's in jail, this slave Onesimus gets saved. And now the, 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 that in, it may not happen as much today, although it probably should. Some of you have experienced this. But when, when you get saved, uh, it, it affects relationships with other people. And, and this is a great example of that. And what we talked about, what happened, the problem is this. Onesimus is now saved. So in, in, in the kingdom of God, he's gone from being a slave, a piece of property, to a brother of Philemon. So the man that used to be his master is now his brother in Christ. And Paul, the wonderful thing about Paul is instead of avoiding the issue, Paul confronts the issue. And Paul says, I'd like to keep him here. He's profitable to me, but I've got to send him back to you because we have to get your relationship with him and his relationship with you straightened out because you're now brothers in Christ. And he says, I wish, you know, I have the right because you got saved under my ministry just as he did. I have the right to command you to accept him, but I'd rather give you the opportunity to do this out of love. And we've looked at this as a good example of how God likes to correct us. He has the right to command us to do what, but what we're supposed to do. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God wants us to obey him and keep his commandments, not out of fear as they did in the Old Testament. That's why it's called the Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant, the New Testament, and the biggest difference is this is a testament of love. We need to be obedient, but God wants the motivation to obey Him, to serve Him, because we love Him because of how much He's loved us and what He's done for us. And so this is kind of an example of that. And so Paul is sending him back, and we've talked about over the last couple of weeks the challenge that that presents to both Philemon and also to Onesimus, because the last time they saw each other, their relationship was master and servant. 
master and slave, not servant, master and slave. And now Onesimus is going back as a brother. And we looked in some scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that when you come to Christ, it changes your nature, who you are. So your old identity is not who you are anymore. So we need to be willing to let go of my old identity. So whatever your nationality was that you were born as, that's just your flesh now. That's not who you really are. Whatever your race is, whatever your, you know, whatever it is, your family, all of that's of the past. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean you've got to avoid it, but it's not your identity. It's not where your value comes. It's not where your esteem comes because now you're a new creature in Christ. And the problem is if we try to hold on to that as our identity, you can't have two different identities. You can't hold on to that as your identity and, ex- and embrace the identity you have in Christ, the new creature you are. And that, uh, that recognition of who you are in Christ now, I've learned through this year especially, is a foundation on which your faith is built. It's a foundation on which your prayer life is built. It's a foundation on which your relationship with God is built. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, you won't have the boldness and confidence to come to Him and and, and, and be with Him in prayer and ask things of Him. You won't have the confidence to believe that God is going to answer your prayers because you know what you're like. But you're not looking at yourself as God looks at you. And we spent... Two weeks basically going over all that. It's really crucial. And this is why we spent the time on that. So that's the background to this. We're going to go in a little different direction tonight. And I believe we'll finish with this short book tonight. So let me read down. If I don't get off on some sidetrack, uh, we'll get to what I believe God wants us to talk about tonight. So with that background, here's what Paul writes. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, which some believe was his wife, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Verse 6, we talked about this, a very important verse. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing that is in you, in Christ Jesus. That actually tells us that until you really know who you are in Christ, you can't share your faith effectively. You can share it, but the effectiveness comes out of your nature, out of who you are. Verse 7, For we have great joy and consolation in your love because of the hearts of the saints who have been refreshed by you, brother. That's all the setup. (laughs) That's the background. Verse 8, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, as if he were my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, but that on your half he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, look at the integrity of Paul. Without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed may not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you, he owes or owes anything, put that to my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay not to mention you that you owe me your own life besides. 
your, yet your brother, yet brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But with that, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. Now, we've looked at those different parts of it, and we could spend more time going through them. But I want to go through verse 8 through 19, and I want to look at it from a little point of view, because this book also has some wonderful insights into the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. And I was, as I was actually in here earlier while uh, they were praying over me at the start of the service, something went off in me about how, to, how this relates. See, but remember Jesus used parables? John does. Okay, anybody else remember Jesus used parables? Uh, he's read his Bible. Okay, Jesus used parables. And the purpose of a parable was to take some spiritual truth and communicate it by a ta- an example of something that your listeners were very were very experienced with, but not just experienced with, they could feel it. The Hebrew language, especially the old Hebrew, is a very emotional language. It has a, it has the very sound of how it's pronounced, and the very the very feel of the words themselves communicate emotion and texture to things. So when Jesus is teaching a lesson, he is not trying to just teach them some theological principle. He wanted them to, to teach them a, 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 point, a principle of spiritual principle of life that touched their hearts where they lived. So he used stories they could relate to. Story of the Good Samaritans is a story you can relate to because you can relate to people that, you know, see somebody in, in danger and they just don't want to get involved. And unfortunately, maybe you can relate to it because it's kind of where you are, but it touches your heart. And then you have the Samaritan who was looked down upon by the Jews because he was a half-breed. He's the one that is moved with compassion, and it shows how far he was compassion, what he was willing to do. Jesus told different examples of that, not just so they could understand the principle, but so they could relate to it, so they could feel the story and feel the principle. Well, this is a parable, but it's a true story. So I believe one part of why this is in there is this is a real-life story of three people, Onesimus a slave, Philemon the owner, and Paul the prisoner, who was the spiritual father of both of them. And, and we've spent time over the last two weeks kind of looking at Onesimus' dilemma, how he's now going back with a different status and with a letter in hand from no one other, someone, no one other than, than the Apostle Paul with his authority telling his former master to accept him. And, and what emotions, what, what Onesimus must have had to deal with to deal with the fact that he had changed in his identity that I'm now a brother to this man, I'm no longer his slave. And I spent that time because it is setting us up for what we're going to talk about tonight. And then you've got Philemon, who was this guy's master. He, was the, he owned him, not just master. He owned him, and now he's got to humble himself and accept this former property as his equal in Christ, as his beloved, Paul uses the word, brother, and how he's got to humble himself to do that. Now, there's some of us, in order to accept the reality of what Christ has done for us, we've got to deal with our old self-image and our old mess of our life and recognize that in God's eyes, we're now a new creature. We're, we're not who we used to be. 
But there's some of us that thought we were pretty hot stuff. And we've got to recognize, Paul says in Romans, I think it's chapter 12, think not more highly of yourself than you ought. But as God has given to each one a grace, some, for some of us to think not more highly means we've got to raise ourselves up to what God says about us. Others have to bring ourselves down to what God says about us. And so you have both of those dynamics here. Well, that's an example of how this story and the, 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 the symbolism that I'm going to, we're going to go over tonight can tie us into this message of the gospel so that we can relate to it more personally of, of what, what God has done for us and in, by, talk, by going through the elements of this story. So with that by way of background, I'm going to talk about these three characters, in, or not characters, these three people in this story, real people that really existed, this really happened. But they also represent three parties in the story of the gospel. And in this, in this example, uh, Philemon represents the father. Now, it doesn't carry out all the little details, but the essence of the story, it does. Because Philemon was the owner of Onesimus. He owned Onesimus. And God, when he created you, God owns you. You've been bought twice. God created you. So that, most of us, that hasn't dawned on us. We think, you know, our parents created us. and No, your parents did something that allowed God's creation to produce your body. But you would not be alive. The life that's in you came from God. God created life. Life comes out of Him. He is the source of all life, including yours life. And therefore, because he's created you, he, he owns you by simply virtue of creation. But because of his love, he doesn't, he doesn't lord that ownership over you. He doesn't, let's put it, he doesn't enforce his rights as an owner over you. Why? Because why did he create you? He created you to love you and for you to love back. And if he made you, I remember sitting with my senior partner, the firm I worked for in, 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 uh, in Tulsa. And he knew I was a Christian. And we're sitting out talking one day. And he said, John, he said, I'm struggling with this, with this story of the, of the Bible, especially of the, of the creation. If, if, God, if God knows everything, and, he, and I said he does, then, then, then why would he create Adam and then Eve knowing that they were going to sin and rebel against him and then have to reject, kick them out. Why would he do that? And I say, to me, that displays how much God loves us, how much God loved them. Because knowing full what they were, well what they were going to do, he created them and gave them a free will so that they could reject him. And he said, why would they do that? I said, because their, their love, what God wanted them to do was to love him and obey him, and that would not mean anything if he made them do it. If your children on Christmas come to you and they spend all the money they have to give you what you wanted most, but because you made them do it, you have to give me this present. I mean, I for a while was in a family where, where you know, you weren't told that, but it was pretty clear what they expected of you. So what you did and gave them was out of fear. And the problem is, it didn't make them feel secure. It made them feel 
more insecure, so they put more pressure on you to do what they wanted to do to make you feel more secure. That's why insecurity is a lousy basis for a relationship. It creates what's called codependency, and I just can't spend time going off in there. And what it basically is is manipulation. Because I don't really believe you love me. I'm going to force you to do things that would make me think you love me. But down inside, I know I've made you do it. So I don't feel secure you really love me. So i got to press you harder and harder and harder to make you do the things that make me think you love me. But I know down inside, I made you do it. So it's it's a vicious cycle. And then it triggers the response. So love doesn't do that. Love sets you free. Love allows you to go and make your own mistakes knowing what you're going to do. And if you've ever had any teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. Or little kids. This is what God's going through. So he had to create them knowing what they were going to do, but, but, he, but if he made them obey him, their obedience wouldn't mean anything. And so he did this knowing what he was going to... That's why it's, he announces the plan of redemption right away in Genesis 3.15. God was prepared for it. He knew what was going to happen. He already was prepared to do what it was going to take to buy us back. So Philemon represents the father in this who starts out by owning Onesimus. And then Onesimus rebels against him and then steals apparently. So he leaves out of rebellion and he leaves owing a tremendous a debt to his owner. And you and I, we, we, we're Onesimus. We rebelled against God, our Creator. Say, so how did I do that? By trying to live your own life your own way? That's the heart of all sin and rebellion is selfishness and self-centeredness. I'm going to do my thing. That's sin. That's rebellion against a God that owns you. Against the God that created you. Against the God that gives you every breath you breathe. Ingratitude is a form of rebellion. Because ingratitude basically says, this is my life, I don't need a God. I don't depend on Him, I depend on myself. God may help me out every once in a while, and I'm gracious, I'm, you know, He's gracious, he's, he's blessed to be able to help me. And that's really some people's attitude. They call themselves Christians. And, 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 but, but, but anything where you're establishing your own life independently of God is rebellion. It's established, it's attempting to establish your own kingdom. You can't establish your own kingdom, but it's your thinking you've established your own kingdom. Self-made man, the master of my soul, of my own soul. And so all that humanism, which is basically rebellion against God. So we're just like Onesimus. We rebelled against our creator. We rebelled against the one that owned us. And we have a debt we owe him that we can't repay. And what did Onesimus do? Because when you've rebelled and you owe something you can't repay, you run away. So Onesimus ran away. And all of us ran from God. Because Jesus said, unless he seeks you, you won't come to him. And so, but then we were found. And in this story, Paul represents Jesus. And what we're going to read in this letter, if we're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to go through and read it again, and what you're going to hear is Paul pleading with Philemon to accept Onesimus back now that he is in a different relationship. And this represents Jesus interceding to the Father on your behalf and on my behalf. And then we're going to look at some scriptures 
that show that to us. So let's go down through here. I'm going to break this apart, and then we're going to look at some scriptures that show this. Verse 8. Therefore, remember, this is a real story. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the agent and now a prisoner of of Jesus Christ. Paul is pleading for Onesimus on the basis of his love for Onesimus. Let's go to um, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Some of my favorite scriptures. This is the crescendo of this chapter. And Paul's just been going over all the things that God has done for us in Christ, starting at the very beginning. And he, he starts out, you know, by saying, what can we say to these things? But he's going to go down to verse 34. Who is he who condemns? He's going through, you know, who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? He says, well, well, it can't be God because God's the one that came up with this idea. And verse 34 is now going to say, well, it can't be Christ. Then who condemns? Is it Christ? No. Who died for us? Who furthermore is also risen? Look at this. Who's, who is, who is, not was, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So Paul is saying that not only did Christ go to the cross and die for you, not with, for us, not was he only was he buried for us, not only was he raised from the dead in victory, and is he seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father, pleading your case on the, to the Father on your behalf. He is doing that. So he's there right now interceding for you, which is why Hebrews says later on, we can come boldly to a throne of grace. Why can we come to a throne of grace? Because God is still a God of righteousness. God is still a God of holiness. God is still a God. See, grace does not mean that God's decided, you know what, these are really basically nice people. I know they've messed up somewhat, and I know they've lied, and I know they've, you know, gone off on their own and done their own thing, but really down underneath. They're basically, in essence, pretty good people. So I'm just going to kind of look the other way. That's really what most people think grace means. And when you think that's what grace means, listen carefully, it cheapens it. It cheapens it. What that says is God's love means, well, I feel kind of sorry for you. So that, you know, I'm just, I'm going to let you in anyway. I know you're a mess, but you're basically a good person. And, you know, so, and the problem with that is it still leaves you looking at yourself. Well, I'm here, I'm I'm in Christ because I'm basically, God found some value in me and he just had pity on me. And that cheats you. First of all, it's not true. You're not basically a good person, and neither am I. We are at nature, or we're at nature, sinners. The reason we sinned is because it was our nature to sin. If you don't believe that, keep your place here. I'm just going to follow. They don't have the scripture back there, but it's Ephesians 2. Verse 1, And He made you alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. This is us. 
we once walked, lived our life according to this world system and according to the prince of the power of the air. You know who that is? That's the devil. And the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, verse 3, also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. So you may have looked at yourself, just that's what I did, I looked at myself and I didn't see why I needed to be saved, because I thought I was a pretty good person. I didn't lie most of the time. I didn't spit and I didn't chew and I didn't run around with people who do. <laughs> I didn't cheat on my income taxes. I loved my wife. I was faithful to my wife. I was a good person. I was a deacon in my church. I went to church every week. Gave $5. I was one of the biggest givers in the church. So I was thought I was something else. You know? I'm just, I'm big stuff. I, was, I like myself. Well, not really. But somewhere down inside... I knew something was wrong. And so the issue is this. We owed a debt. We owed a debt that we could not pay. We just couldn't pay it. See, God's grace does not mean God looks the other way. God's grace does not mean God had pity on you and me. Because he would not... There's a, oh, there's a, oh boy, let's be careful. Because there's a verse, I think it's in Hebrew... In John, blah, blah, blah in Romans 5, where it says that he might be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. So God, in order to justify you, could not stop being just himself. God, in order to make you righteous, couldn't stop being righteous himself. So if God changed the requirements, if God said, look, I'm just going to look the other way because you're basically good people, then he would no longer be righteous himself. He would have compromised who he is. So he would no longer be just himself. So what's he going to do? How's he going to stay holy and righteous and yet have you and me entered into a relationship with him in heaven, which is a holy and righteous place, into a holy relationship with him as his children? We have to be as righteous as he is to do that. So the only way to do that was he had to pay for our sin. Not just pay the price, but he had to take the full wrath and judgment so that the price would be paid in full, which is what Colossians says, that the, the handwriting of requirements against us has been eradicated by the blood of Christ. There were charges against you and me. There were legitimate legal charges In, in, in Isaiah, it says he ransomed us. I was meditating on that this summer. You know what a ransom comes from? It comes from a kidnapping. That's the most common term we use it. Somebody kidnaps like the Lindbergh child. Or somebody kidnaps the child of a wealthy person. Why? Do, they don't care for that child. That's not because they wanted the child. They're holding that child because they know they've got a hold of something that's more precious to those parents than the money that's in their bank. And if those parents have to make a trade for all the money that's in their bank to get that child back, they'll do that willingly because that child is more precious to them, more valuable to them than the money. And when the Bible says God ransomed you, that's what he did. You and I were kidnapped. The difference is 
our kidnapper, Satan, had a legal right to take us because we had sinned. But God loved you more than what he was willing to pay for you. And God looked at you and looked at me and said, the only way to get you back in a relationship with me is to pay your debt, to pay that ransom. And the only thing that's going to satisfy the righteous requirement of my holiness is blood, death, because the wages of sin is death. And the only one qualified to die and come back again is my precious holy son. But because I love you so much, I'm willing to send him in your... I'm getting ahead of myself here. I better get back to Philemon here. (laughs) Well, we're going to get back to that. (laughs) We'll get back there, so hang with it. (laughs) Hebrews 8.25. I want you to see that, that right now, if you're someone, whatever you're like, whatever you're, you may be, feel like you're sitting on top of a mountain and you know, you just, you know, God's sitting right in your lap or you're sitting in his lap and I mean, it couldn't get any better, but maybe you're down in a valley somewhere. You don't know where God is and you're not, think he knows where you are right now, but I want to show you what's going on here. Verse 25, Hebrews eight twenty-five. therefore he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save, that means Forever. Those who come to God through Him, if you come to God through Him, then He's able. It didn't say anything about how able you are. It doesn't say anything about how able I am. It talks about how able Jesus is. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost, to the end of time, those who come to God through Him. Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, not just twirling his thumbs, not just like, but pleading your case every day to the Father so that when you come, whenever you come to him, whenever you come to him, whatever it is, and you may feel inadequate, but you've got a representative there who, who, who's touched with the feeling of your infirmities, chapter 4 says. In fact, one of the reasons he took on flesh is so that he could understand what you and I go through and sympathize with, understand the weaknesses of our flesh because he had to wear flesh also, except he never sins. So he's qualified to represent us because he never gave into it, but he's also qualified to understand what you're going through. So he is a merciful high priest. A, a priest is somebody who bridges a gap between God and man. And Hebrews chapter 5 tells you the qualifications. He has to be born of God, but he has to be born of a man so that he can relate to men, but he has to be chosen by God. So a, a, a priest in the Old Testament, that was his function, but he could only do it in a limited way. Christ does it in a perfect way because Christ can, can relate to God and can communicate with God because he's his born son, but he can understand us and sympathize with us because he wore flesh. We're going to look at them getting ahead of myself again. And so, so you understand the Father, God the Father, doesn't understand what it's like to get tired. He doesn't understand what it's like to get frustrated. He doesn't want to understand what it's like to get discouraged. He doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted, because he can't be tempted. And Jesus couldn't either until he took on flesh. Because all the temptations, all the avenues of Satan to get at you come through the flesh. That's why Hebrew... Why, why, blah, 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 blah. 
Sunday. Uh, that's why Ephesians 2 talks about in the lusts of our flesh. That's what the prince of the wor- world operates through is the lusts of our flesh. But before we're saved, we couldn't help it because that's what our nature was on the inside. And so, so, um, so Jesus took on flesh so that he could relate to us and be a, 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 be, be a, a faithful high priest so that one that can understand you the one that I can understand what you're going through right now even more than you can, the emotion of it, the whole circumstances of it. He can understand what that's like, yet he can have victory over it. He's there sitting at the right hand of the Father pleading your case, pleading your case. And he ever lives to do that for you. So here's Paul in that same role pleading on behalf of Onesimus because now Onesimus is related to Paul. And now that you belong to Christ, he can plead your case. Because notice it's for those who've come to God through him. He's not pleading the case of the world, he's pleading the case of the family, of those who've come to God through him. All right. Back to Philemon. We'll get back to this, don't worry. Now let's go to verse 10. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to me. When unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me on your behalf, uh, that he might minister to me and might change for the gospel without your consent. I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might be, but not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a little while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is appealing to Philemon to receive him now as a member of his family. To receive him as a brother, not as a slave. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Some of these things we're going to read, you need to spend some time on. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews 2. I put in my notes 1, so in the back... The sound booth, you're going to have the wrong verse. It's 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's Christ, for whom all things are and by whom all things are, in bringing many, listen carefully, many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That means to complete, to complete his mission through his sufferings. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, that's him, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Stop there a second. That's an astounding statement. What, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that. Christ suffered 
so that the sanctifier might become one with the sanctified. That we who were messes, we who were in rebellion, we who were enemies to God, we were who owed a debt we couldn't pay, all the things we just talked about, that we might not just be brought into the family, but sanctified. That means set apart as God is set apart. As sanctified as Christ is sanctified. As, ready for this? As holy. That's harder, isn't it? As Christ is holy. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as He chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and without blame before Him in love, His love for us. Out of love for us, He chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be holy. Not that you would get to be holy, because you can't. That He might make you holy. That's got to sink in. Because we know He's holy. We know the Spirit's holy. That's why it's called the Holy Spirit. But if you ask most Christians, are you holy? I wouldn't even get those words out of my mouth because lightning might strike me. Then you need to get saved. Because His blood washed you and made you clean. That you might be holy. That means sitting in your chair right now If Christ is your Savior and Lord, sitting in your chair right now, in God's eyes, you are as holy as Jesus. It's the Word. You're as holy as Jesus. This goes back to what I said in the very beginning. We have to renew our mind to what He did for us who He's made us to be. So you can't hold on to who you used to be because you can't hold on to who you used to be and embrace who you are now. And believe me, it is an incredible deal to let go of who you used to be and when you find out who you really are right now, and it changes how you pray, it changes how you, oh, I'm, I'm going to get on the sidetrack here, but it's good. I've been asking, Lord, I need you to teach me more. I, I, want, I want my prayers to be more effective. James 5 says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. I'm tired of not seeing prayers answered. I'm tired of crying out for things and not seeing prayers answered. You know, you get tired of praying. You want to give up on praying if you don't see answers. God, your word says we ought to see answers. Teach me how to pray that way. And the Lord took me through some things. And it's all founded on knowing who I am in Christ all founded on understanding that I am as righteous as Jesus is tonight. When I go before the Father, he see, in, in His name, He sees Jesus, He sees as much as He sees me. And, and one of the things I began to see is, is that, remember this, the parable Jesus taught about the, about the neighbor whose, whose friend comes to, to visit, and he goes to his neighbor and knocks on the door at midnight and says, you know, I don't have any food, could you lend me some food? 
And it says, you know, he's persistent in his knocking. And he says, his, his friend says, all right, I'm going to give you the food. Not because you're your neighbor and I like you, but because of your persistence, it says in many translations. But that word is actually importunity, which if you look it up, it means brashness. It doesn't mean you just keep... It means you're unabashed asking. What Jesus is telling us is the way to get answers to your prayer is to come boldly to the throne of grace. To come in there expecting you've got a right to be there in the Father's face talking to Him about these situations. The word ask, the most common Greek word for ask, when Jesus tells us to ask something of the Father, is the word aito, which basically means to boldly demand something for yourself. Now, you can't do something that's not a promise of God. You can't demand somebody else's wife, and you probably wouldn't want her anyway. But, but it's a, to take some promise of God, you have a right to take the promise of God and go argue your case with boldness before Him. And Isaiah says, come plead your case. But you won't do that if you're looking at yourself as you see yourself in your own soul and how you act. You've got to begin to see yourself as I have been made holy. It's what the Word says. And we've got to learn to go by what the Word says, not what I think of myself or other people think of me. All right. But look at this. Let's go through the rest of this. We didn't finish the rest of that verse. Who's, who sanctifies those who are being sanctified, and we're all one with Him and with each other. That's the other side of this. Look at this. For which reason? Because we're one with Him. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call you His brother. And Paul is pleading with Philemon to let him come back as a member of the family, not as a slave. And this is teaching us that you have a right to come to the Father, not as an ex-slave, not as an ex-sinner, but as a child of the living God. As a child of the living God. You have a right to come up to the table. There's a great story in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into all the ramifications of it. But it's a story of David and Jonathan. They were in a covenant relationship. And then Jonathan is killed. David now becomes king. And to honor the covenant that David made with with Jonathan, who was Saul's son, who was the next in line to be king. Now David is put in as king. And one of the first things David does once he's established is to ask, did Jonathan have any sons? Because they would have been in the bloodline for the king. And they come back with a report, yes, he's got a son. He's out hiding in a place called Lodabar, and his name is Mephibosheth, which basically means shame. And he's hiding because he's afraid, because the practice was when a king took, a new king took over, he would execute the sons of the fire king because there were going to be the threats to his throne. So they would cut their heads off, and there are examples of that in the Old Testament. So Mephibosheth is hiding out for fear David's going to find him, and when it, they, he initially is, is taken and, and runs for fear, his, his nanny takes him because he's still a little child and drops him and both of his legs break. 
So he's lame. And David sends out to find him. And when he finds him, he brings him back to the palace. And Mephibosheth falls down before him and calls him and says, you know, why would you want a dead dog? He expects he's going to be executed. And David, to shorten the story, David said, I made a covenant with your father. And because I made a covenant with your father, I've made a covenant with you because you're of the bloodline of the father. So therefore, I'm restoring everything to you that should have been yours as his son. I'm taking all the servants you should have had and I'm giving them to you to run your land, but you're not going to eat in your house. You're going to sit at the king's table as one of his sons. So Mephibosheth, who was not in the bloodline of the family, because of a covenant that David had made with his father, was concluded as a member of the family, seated at the king's table to eat the king's food. He had a right to be there as much as the other members of the family. And there's a last line of, I think it's it's, um, uh, 2 Samuel 9, the last line in there, I love this line. After setting all of this up, it says, And Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. That means he couldn't do anything. He was helpless. He couldn't do anything back for the king. He couldn't do anything to earn his food. All he could do is sit there and receive this incredible gift of grace that the king was bestowing upon him. And he wasn't, didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, what he earned, what he was entitled to, was to be executed because of who he was, the family he came from. You and I came from Satan's family. We, we, were, we, had a, we were destined to die eternally. But God, because of a covenant he made with Christ Jesus and cut on that cross, we have the benefit of that covenant when you come to Christ. Christ, and all that was Christ is now ours, even though we're lame in both of our feet and can do nothing. We just got the blood covenant course done in about 10 minutes. That's what this is about. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. Jesus is not as Why? Because we're one with him. We have three sons. And when they'll get together at Christmas, they're not ashamed to call each other brother. They may pick on each other. They may not agree with everything else. They, but they don't say, what are you doing here? Why? Because they're equal. They're, they've all come from us. And we've been put in the same status with Jesus. Didn't Jesus pray that in John chapter 17? He said, Father, I'm asking now for those that will believe on me through these disciples' name. That's us. That they all may be one. And that they may know that they may be one with us, with me and you, and one with each other. So that Jesus' prayer that it was for what he was going to do, we would be one with him. And therefore, because we're one, all one with him, we're one with each other. And that they would know that you love them as you love me. That's in the word. Jesus, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. In fact, you can make the argument he loves you more. Because he was willing to give Jesus to get you. Okay. Verse 18. Philemon, verse 18. So we'll get done with this tonight. We've kind of covered all this a little bit. And now he's going to plead about the debt he owed. And if he's wronged you... 
or owes you anything, put that to my account. Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing to you with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self. So Paul is saying, he's coming back to you. Oh, and by the way, to get this relationship right, I remember he owes you something. He can't pay it. So I'll pay whatever he owes. It goes on my tab. I'll pay it. Charge it to my account. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus took your debt and my debt and said, I'll pay the price. And in his case, the bill wasn't money. It was his own life. Because the wages, the debt we owed was death. It was our blood. And Jesus said, okay, I'll take your debt on me. And that's why Jesus tells the parable about the man that wouldn't forgive. And says, wait a minute, he was forgiven a million dollars. That represents what our debt that was forgiven. There's no way we could begin to pay it. And then he turned around and he wouldn't forgive a $20 debt that another fellow servant owed to him. And when we won't forgive one another, in God's eyes, that's exactly what we're doing. He took all your debt and all my debt, and the sinless one took it upon himself. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll end with this one. Verse 21, He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's one of the most important and powerful verses in the Bible. He, God, so this was His idea, this was His doing, this was God's plan, this is what He wanted to do. Ephesians 1 says, it was according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. He made Christ on that cross to be sin. How did he do it? I don't know. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. I heard one day somebody say, if he can just make him sin, then he can make me righteous. But he couldn't make me righteous until he made him sin. Because my sin had to be paid for before I could be made righteous. Understand this. It doesn't say he cleans you up. Because you'd still be the same person. Four verses earlier it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We talked about that several weeks ago. All things have passed away and all things have become moved. Now he's talking about what the new creature is. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Your sin, my sin, sin itself. So that he could legally make us to be his righteousness. And look, I want you to look at this. That we might become, this is the part that can stretch your mind, 
Not righteous. But the righteousness of God. God's literally made you as righteous as He is. He's given you, given you, as a gift, His righteousness. Righteousness of God. He's given you His own, He's given you. He's, it's a gift. He's given you. He's given you. You're lame in both your feet. There's nothing you could do to earn it. He's given you. It, it's a gift to the praise of the glory of His grace. He's given you His righteousness. But I did all that. But He's given you His righteousness. As a gift, He's given you. He's given you His righteousness. But here's the key, those last two words, in Christ, in Him. Because what He did when you came to Christ, He joins you to Christ. Remember we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, because we're one with Him, when He joined you to Christ, that's how you got His righteousness. Because you've been joined to Him. You're as righteous as Jesus because you're joined to Him. When Anita married me, she was as rich or poor as I am because she's now joined to me. Because we're joined together, whatever one is, we both of us are. Well, when you're joined to Christ, whatever He is, that's who you are. In Christ. It's all in Christ. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He took your debt. So Paul is pleading with Philemon, saying whatever Onesimus owes you, now that he's in this new relationship with you, it's my debt, I'll pay it. And Jesus, interceding for you with the Father, when you mess up, say, I know they messed up, I know they've messed up, but they've come to a throne of grace, to receive mercy in a time of need and they can come because I'm a faithful high priest. That's all Hebrews 4. Because he's a faithful high priest. Because, oh, because he's faithful. Doesn't say anything about you being faithful. Because he's faithful. In fact, most of the time when we need help, it's because we haven't been faithful. Which is why we need to come to a throne of grace to receive mercy. Because if we've been faithful, we don't need to receive mercy and grace. We can come up to the table because we deserve it. But most of the time, we're lame in both our feet. We're lame in our excuses. <laughs> oh, i got to end here. This is, so, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel, which in this day and hour is so critical that we receive that deposit in us. That as a free gift, He's given to us His righteousness. And we have somebody 
that's paid. The, the reason he could do that is the one that paid for your sin is sitting at the right hand of God, not reminding him of what you did. Oh, God, this is so good. But reminding him of what he did. Oh, not reminding you of, do you remember what John did before? Remember what Ray's done? No. When Ray comes and says, oh, Father, I know what I did. Jesus reminds, yeah, but you know what I did. You know what I did. I, you know what I did? I paid for it. I know what he did. I know he messed up, but it's the throne of grace because I'm faithful. I paid for it. And he's there reminding the Father, pleading your case. I paid for it. 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 So come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in a time of need because we have a faithful a faithful high priest, a faithful high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you and for me to the Father. And, and the Father's not sitting there, I don't know when I've done it, I don't really want to do this. The Father's the one that set this up. This was his idea. He set this up so he could legally receive you in whatever situation you're in and give to you mercy and grace and help. Praise God. Praise God. Never know how much is in this little book. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just stand in awe of you, how good you are. We stand in awe of you, and we just continue, Father, to day by day get more and more understanding and insight into the enormity of what you've done for us, that we may walk in it. Father, as we read earlier in this letter, that the sharing of our faith may come, become effective as we grow in our acknowledgement and understanding of what you've done in us in Christ. Father, open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see what it is you've done for us and the love that you have for us. That we may worship you out of that love back for you. That we may not come in here and have to work it up, but that we may come in here ready to just burst forth because we've lived our day full of an awareness of the grace and love of God in our lives. Father, we thank you that your spirit has been given to us to do that. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.